The silence is so sweet. Sometimes it's hard to speak into it. It's so nice to just be with you. So quiet. You might not feel so quiet inside. (laughs) It feels sweet in here right now. So I want to begin with a quote by a queer, black, non-dual sociologist. A non-dual sociologist. And their name is, is Crystal Fleming. Crystal says, Meditation attunes me to the still, small voice within, my own inner wisdom. Becoming grounded in our beingness, in what we already are, is my path for transcending the fiction of our incompleteness. Becoming grounded in our beingness, in what we already are, is my path for transcending the fiction of our incompleteness. This is why meditation is so useful. It allows us to create moments of stillness in our lives so that we can directly experience our unchangeable wholeness. So we can directly experience our unchangeable wholeness. So the title of this talk is Returning to Wholeness Through the Four Noble Truths. There's an ancient Chinese folktale. Anybody in here Chinese? (coughs) Yeah, this is a story from your culture. This is about a young woman named Seijo. So the story goes that she falls in love. I like to think about her as falling in love with a woman. For some reason, I think about this. She falls in love and the family disapproves. So she's in sorrow and grief, not knowing what to do. And the story goes that eventually she leaves her family and runs off with her young lover. They run off together and they have a full life, a full life, Seijo and her partner. And then after many years pass, she decides to return and try to make amends with her family, her parents. And so she goes, she knocks on the door, and her older father answers the door. And he's so surprised to see her. She says, I've returned home. And he says, Seijo is here. Sejo has been sick in bed for years since she abandoned her lover and decided to stay at home. And so the other Sejo at home, sick, comes down from her bedroom and meets the Sejo who left. And in that moment of meeting, they are integrated and become one. The two versions merge. The one who stayed home fell ill, grieving in bed, and the other one who left had a full life and came home. 
So in some ways, practice is like this, isn't it? That we feel splintered. We feel like all these moments in our life of pain and trauma, invisibilizing, abandoning ourselves, we're all splintered inside. And maybe it's that the outer world doesn't accept us or something inside doesn't accept us. And so we, we end up trying to fix ourselves, all in con- trying to control the uncontrollable. Our beloved teacher Kitty Sorrow talks about these as the orphans of consciousness. We have all these parts of ourselves that might be in the body, in the unconscious, but have felt marginalized or exiled. And so one frame of practice is rediscovering all of these, of loving them back into wholeness, into worthiness, inviting them back in, this feeling of healing, of integrating. And when we really acknowledge all of those exiled parts, all these parts that feel shame or unworthy or grief, this kind of return to wholeness allows us then to see things as they really are. To align with reality in a new way. And what is that reality? What is that truth? We have to honor these parts, but the truth also is they're illusory, they're like parts in a dream. And so when we fully let go into all of this interdependence, this integration, this wholeness. We can start to understand what we were talking about yesterday. Yang was naming this kind of big love, this deeper connection, this sense that there isn't a separation, that we're all just nature loving itself into being. So in my first three-month retreat at IMS, I was here sitting in that spot right there. And Dara was also sitting as a yogi, and so was Nakaway. So maybe 11, I think 11 years ago. And one of our teachers uh, was a monk named Dhammaruan. He's known for his chanting. And in evening times, he would sit up here, and he taught us the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta in Pali, a very beautiful chanting voice. And this Dhammachaka Sutta is the turning of the wheel of Dhamma. It's the very first Dharma talk the Buddha gave. There's so many beautiful lines in there. It turned the wheel of Dharma, and the Dharma is unstoppable. It's like he started this wheel. He pushed the wheel, and now it's still rolling along. We're part of that turning. So this chant is one of my favorite ones. And because we did it every night for three months, I... I uh, learned some of it in Pali. So it's a little scary for me, but I thought I would just share a little bit, a little bit of this chant for you all. Ewang me sutang, e kang samayang bagawa, bara ni siyang wiharati. 
isi patane migadaye. Tatrako bhagawa panchawagiye bhikkhu amantesi. Dveme bhikkhawe anta pabajitena. Na sevitabayo chayang kamesu. Kama sukalika nuyogo. Hinogamo potu janiko. Anario anata sangito. It just goes on and on. It's like forever. <laughs> so repetitive. But it's so beautiful, the syllables I find. There's something about just naming the language. Ancient, ancient language, ancient syllables. So in this sutta, this first Dharma talk, we heard the story about the Buddha's awakening from Yang, that he was assailed by all of these hindrances on the night of his awakening. He was under a big grandmother tree. He was assailed by desire and aggression and armies and doubt, a sense of unworthiness. And he touched the earth as his witness, maybe in a, in a moment of anxiety or doubt. And in the sutta it says, the earth shook in confirmation of his awakening. And when he saw what he saw, he had this sense of like, I don't I don't know if I can teach this. I don't know. So he really, he stayed secluded in the woods, it says, for some weeks. And then there, the story goes that a deva, a beautiful uh, celestial being, came down and said, please, out of compassion for beings, teach the Dharma. And so he thought about it. He said, there are those with little dust in their eyes. That's each of us. And they can know. They can see. And so, yes, out of compassion, I will teach the Dharma. For us, he did that. So he went out of the woods and he walked to uh, Isipatana. You can hear it in the sutta, in in Deer Park. And he found five of his old friends and he taught this turning of the wheel, this same Dhammachaka Sutta. This is what he taught about reality, the Four Noble Truths. The first teaching that he chose to offer to his friends. So, what is this teaching? It's about truth. What is true? These four noble, noble truths. So, one simile that's offered for these four noble truths is that it's as if we don't even know it, but we have a broken leg. We're broken leg and we come into the doctor and we're in pain somehow. And the doctor says, well, you're in pain because you have a broken leg. So he diagnoses us. But then he says, actually, the prognosis is good. That you can heal from this broken leg. If you do enough physical therapy and wear a cast for a while and trust the process, over time your leg will heal. So it's basically that. The Buddha is this doctor. He gives us a diagnosis for why we're hurting. He says, prognosis, you can heal from this. And then he says, this is the medicine. This is how you heal. That's basically the formula for the Four Noble Truths. 
and you might be familiar with it. The, the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha translated as suffering, stress, unreliability, ungovernability. The second truth is the cause of this stress. Third truth is that there's a way out. There's a cessation of our stress. And the fourth noble truth is the path, the way to get free. And often we've heard a traditional rendering of these four noble truths as the cause is craving and the cessation is letting go of craving. But one other interpretation I'll offer this evening, this afternoon, is that we suffer. Yes, we suffer. And maybe the cause of that is because of the splinter, this divide. We feel separate and alone, vulnerable, anxious, angry, invisible. It's like this original split, and then we believe that story of separation. And this leads to craving. We crave all these other things that we think is going to heal this original split. And so the Buddha said the path is one of completion, of wholeness, that is about letting go of that craving when we're integrated and whole. And so the third noble truth of cessation is about inclusion, accompaniment, which allows us to see things as they truly are. As Crystal Fleming says, we're transcending the fiction of our incompleteness so that we can directly experience our unchangeable wholeness. You might name this as a deep connection or the loving awareness that we, that we truly are, which in itself is an absence of craving. So the first noble truth, dukkha arya satchang. I love that it's arya, it's noble. What does that mean? We've all been standing under our dukkha, haven't we? And I've heard from so many of you, it's such an honor to hear the ways that you're standing under your dukkha, your understanding, your dukkha. We do this in retreat. And that's what the Buddha said, that the first noble truth of dukkha is to be understood. We have to know it intimately. We have to know the split. And so I really love word etymology. I went and I looked at dukkha, and I knew it had something to do always with this wheel not fitting well. But I looked up, so the Arya, the Aryans, the Aryans are the ones who uh, were inhabiting this part of India when the Buddha was living, where he was born, and he was teaching to these Aryans. And their language, in their language, um, do means bad, and ka means space. Or a wheel, because their culture was really based in, in wheels and chariots and carts, and is really the way they got around. So there's a lot of imagery of chariots and carts and horses pulling things on wheels in the, in the Buddha suttas. And so dukkha was really, it was a wheel that had a bad fit, 
like the hole wasn't quite in the center of the wheel. So that makes for a bumpy ride, right? But there's something really beautiful if we're talking about wholeness. Isn't that interesting? That dukkha is about not really being fully whole, like a bad kind of fit in the wholeness. That's what we're experiencing when we're split or we're not aligned with reality. We're wedded to this dream state. We don't actually see things as they are. And it's like a wheel with a bad axle. And so we bump along in samsara. We have stress. We feel this unreliability. We try to fight it and try to get things just right. Have you noticed any kind of bumpy ride while you've been here? Mm. And we all have our little dukkhas every moment when we see we're not able to control our bodies or our minds, but we have big dukkhas too. We have like original splinters. And so for me, this happened in college. I was always pretty uh, connected to my parents and my hometown, and so I went off to college. It was really scary. There's a lot of unknown, a lot of really feeling uh, out of control. And so my strategy for that was to figure out, like, okay, well, how do I fit in? How do I uh, make the right friends? How do I do this right? Get all the right grades? And in my particular condition and my particular uh, social location, it was a lot about looking right. A lot of body image dukkha. So I was in a sorority. I was on the lightweight crew team. And very much huge part of my life, getting up early, going out and rowing. And because we were on the lightweight team, we were getting weighed every week. This was a public thing where we would each, one at a time, get on the scale and the coaches would write down our weights. And then they would say, you know, you're two pounds over. And so we'd have to get on the erg or get in the, the bicycle with all of our sweats on and try to sweat off the couple of pounds so we could row the race. There was so much. I didn't even know how much I was suffering. I was just trying to fit. I was just trying to get it right. And I remember I would go to the gym every day. I would take all my homework to the gym, so all these textbooks. And I would get on the Stairmaster, spread out my textbooks, and just read and do Stairmaster for a lot of the afternoon every day. And I, I remember one moment I was there sweating away, doing my homework. I remember looking down the line, and there were all these other women, white women, just one right after the other doing the same thing, burning our calories, you know, weighing ourselves before, weighing ourselves after the workout. And it was like I could see this ripple, like, oh my God, I could do this for the rest of my life. Could be wedded to calories and numbers, and this could just be my life. I saw it. I saw it all kind of spreading out in front of me. And I think in that moment, I felt a kind of, I could sense the exile that was happening. I could sense the split. Like, oh, something in me was like, no. There's got to be some other way. This life feels so futile. 
so futile, just like on a treadmill, literally, right? Hamster wheel. But I was so wedded to this sense of a conditional sense of self-worth, right? Only if I weighed a certain amount would I be okay and accepted and belong. So fully, I was so fully in the story of society gives us this formula of how to be happy. And that's what we do. We just follow the rules. We're going to be good. So I think this is really about the first noble truth. And it's, it's good practice to reflect, and probably you have already here. What are the ways that we look for happiness in all the wrong places? Where are we allowing these, these parts to be exiled? At the expense of our well-being, where are we abandoning ourselves to fit in, to follow the rules? In the sense of perfectionism or control? And what parts of you are getting exiled along the way? The tragedy of this is that we're never going to get it right if we follow all those rules. And the Buddha was very clear. He said, birth is dukkha, decay is dukkha, illness is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha, separation from the loved is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. Separation from all that is beloved, just as Nakaway was recollecting with us. This is the truth of our lives. It's kind of like our assignment. We're born into a human life. Right there, we're aging. We're heading right towards death. Isn't that true? Sorry for bad news. (laughs) That's what's happening. (laughs) It's so inevitable, and yet we find ourselves fighting it all the way. So it takes a lot of nobility and dignity to do this work. Do you feel that? I mean, that's the quietude that's so beautiful in the room, is here we are, moment by moment, coming really face to face with these realities. It's not easy. You can feel like we're assaulted by our thoughts, yeah? We feel grief. So many are grieving in this room. Really real losses that you're experiencing. And I think because we're so split and we believe in the separation, when we then feel shame about it and we judge ourselves because we're suffering, it's a whole lot harder to accept, isn't it? hard enough to be a human being. We've got our own personal dukkhas, and then, of course, we've got the dukkha of the world. And we all carry this in our bodies. It's really interesting to have been teaching through the pandemic, like anxiety, going through the roof. The number of people I hear talk about heart palpitations. I mean, we're feeling this in our bodies. Bodies are holding it. 
So of course we splinter, of course we freeze, we dissociate, we go numb. Those are our protectors. We kind of need those strategies. But it's so much easier if we don't judge ourselves for it. A lot of this, I think, is just learning to accompany ourselves through the freeze. To love ourselves enough to be able to come face to face again and again with the reality of aging and illness and dying. Loss. And I think in those moments of accompaniment again and again, the more we can hold ourselves. I've heard so many of you speak really beautifully about how you're holding yourself in the practice. The more we can start to trust, trust that these hearts have a really big capacity to hold. Like this hot mess. I'm the hot mess of the world too. So I'm sort of covering the second noble truth too as I'm talking about this, the arising of dukkha, those original splits, knowing them clearly. So many moments I've gone back in my practice to those minds, the minds that were on the treadmill on the Stairmaster, right? Again and again, instead of like judging her, I've got to just feel so much compassion for her. Man, she was like really struggling. I didn't even know how much I was. But knowing the arising of that split, okay, where's the shame coming? Where is it? Where's the original point of that? Oh, and I've heard again a lot of you say, oh, I I encountered this part that feels unworthy. Or I heard that voice that says, I'm not good enough or I'm not doing it right. So skillful, so skillful. This is the second noble truth, knowing when that moment happens. Can we hold it? Can we love it? So the arising of dukkha when we're kind of holding back the tide. Have you felt that? I'm just fighting so hard against reality and I just want it to be different. Bruce Tiffs calls this the fundamental aggression towards reality. So that's the second noble truth. Yeah, we have this illusion of control. We're resisting. We're craving. We're pushing away. And, I mean, man, mainstream culture tells us that they're like, if you just do it right, stay healthy, get the right job, have the right house, get the right relationship, you'll be good. You should be happy, right? If you're not, there's something wrong with you. How cruel is that narrative? So you might notice I'm naming a lot of this parts work. I hear so many of you doing internal family systems, recognizing the protectors, the parts of ourselves that protect, the parts of ourselves that manage, all of the little ones inside who need care, who need holding. This is the returning to wholeness, the understanding that we can reparent ourselves. There's that secure attachment again. Can we think about the Buddha as our great-grandfather? He's like holding all of the parts accompanying us. So this poem by Jane Hirschfield, I've really fallen in love with Jane Hirschfield again. She's a Zen poet. 
And this, this poem is called The Poet. I think it's really about this accompaniment of all of our parts. The Poet. She is working now in a room not unlike this one, the one where I write or where you read. Her table is covered with paper. The light of the lamp would be tempered by a shade where the bulb's single harshness might dissolve. But it is not. She has taken it off. Her poems? I will never know them, though they are the ones I most need. Even the alphabet she writes in, I cannot decipher. Her chair, let us imagine whether it is leather or canvas, vinyl or wicker. Let her have a chair, her shadeless lamp, the table. Let one or two she loves be in the next room. Let the door be closed, the sleeping one's healthy. Let her have time and silence, enough paper to make mistakes and go on. I find that so beautiful. Let her have paper, time, silence. Let her make mistakes and go on. I think she's holding that part. The poet. I will never know her poems, though they are the ones I most need. So, how about the third, third noble truth? We can hear a lot about dukkha. (laughs) We can hold it. We are holding it. But... The Buddha did say there's a good prognosis, the third noble truth of freedom, the end of dukkha. It's sometimes hard to believe. Do we even give ourselves the possibility of that? I think we can get really weighed down. I mean, it's important. We need to understand dukkha. But do we allow ourselves the truth that he said there are those a little dust in their eyes? You know, Crystal Fleming, there's unchangeable wholeness that we find in the stillness here. And you're doing it. So often I think we hold that as a future possibility if even that. But what would it be like to really believe the Buddha when he says you too can know this kind of freedom? It's your birthright. So my beloved Tibetan teacher, Yonge Mingyur Rinpoche, he says, to bring an end to suffering... We need to cut through dualistic habits of perception and the illusions that hold them in place. Not by fighting or suppressing them, but by embracing and exploring them. Do you feel a theme here? So these dualistic habits of perception... This is definitely the original split, but it's also the way we categorize the world. I mean, of course, there is a world and there is dualism, but it's just as Yang was saying yesterday, that we transcend it. We start to feel like we're simply part of nature, this flow of the elements. 
And there are times, many times a day, actually, that we're, we feel this. We don't have to wait for some later freedom. Ajahn Buddhadasa, the great Thai forest master, called this, he said we have these a lot. I mean, they show up in the suttas called Tadanga Nibhuto, these little mini freedoms, mini freedoms, mini freedoms. We don't notice them, but he said if we didn't have them, we would go crazy. <laughs> right? The weight of dukkha is so big. So a lot of this practice, we need to show up for the good. Dara mentioned this, seeing our goodness. So much goodness that we overlook because we're all mired in the problems and the tangles and trying to love ourselves into being. Yes. But there's so much goodness already happening. So much beauty. Those moments of release. The absence. The absence of craving. This is our, it's happening, it's ours. We really can do it. The Japanese poet, Dharma practitioner, really a wonderful Dharma master, Izumi Shikibu, she says, gazing at the full moon at night, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So this is what we're doing again and again. It's not like we have to wait for full integration in order to know full truth. Returning to wholeness, opening to wisdom and love. We just do this moment by moment. And I think what's so beautiful about this formula of the Four Noble Truths is that we allow the dukkha, we recognize the orphans of consciousness, we love them into wholeness, And then it's like the raft. It's like, instead of letting go of the Dharma, it becomes who we are. Right? What's left after the end of suffering? Love. Deep connection. Ancient wisdom. It becomes who we are. We're becoming love. And that love understands. It understands impermanence. It understands imperfection the impersonal quality of life, our deep belonging to the family of things. So this freedom, these moments, big or small, there's so many in the suttas. And this happened when the Buddha did the turning of the wheel. You know, he taught the Four Noble Truths, a very repetitive sutta. We chant it, you chance, if you chant the whole thing, you go on and on. It's very long. But after doing all of this chanting and all of this teaching, Four Noble Truths, at the end, there's one friend, one disciple, Kondanya. Kondanya who understands. And the Buddha knows. He sees his friend who's like, and and the earth shakes, like all the celestial heavens are celebrating because Kondanya understands, understands. That's how the wheel keeps going because he got it. It's all bright. There's like fireworks. And Kondanya is like, wow, I get it. I see. That's what it feels like when we start to feel this truth that's so deep. It's deeper than our dream state that we're living in all the time, the illusion of separateness. And there's a celebration, right? Can we imagine the earth and the trees and everybody singing in celebration? That's going to happen for us. It could happen any time. It's all through the suttas, you know? People are eating, they're free. People are walking, they're free. 
one, te- one of my favorites, oh my gosh. This teacher hadn't fully attained enlightenment, but they were already a teacher. They were giving a Dharma talk, and the Dharma talk was exactly what they needed to hear. And they're like, they got enlightened from their own talk. <laughs> I feel like that a lot. Like, this is just what I need to hear. <laughs> trying to get it up here. <laughs> Understand. Hmm. Such beauty, such peace is available for us. And a lot of this path is trusting that that is ours. It's ours. We can find it. In some ways, we're already, it's already happening. Already here, already free. So the fourth noble truth. Fourth noble truth, the path. The Buddha says this is to be realized. To be realized. So there's this beautiful story in the suttas called The City. It's about this woods person. I like to think about them as like a steward of the woods. They spend their time out in the woods and the trees kind of taking care of the earth and making sure the woods are okay. And they live in a kind of a rundown village. All these villagers there. And their particular job is to take care of the forest. And so one day they're out doing their work in the woods and they find a trail. And it's like a grown-over trail. It's all mossy and branches. And they kind of push their way through. And what they come upon is this amazing city. This beautiful, ancient city. And this woods person runs back to the village. like, look, you've been living in this like rundown place. There's this beautiful city along an ancient trail that's been traveled already a lot. We just have to cut our way through again. We just have to remember our way. And all these villagers go back and they inhabit this beautiful city. That's the Buddha. The woods person is the Buddha. He discovered this trail that was maybe already trod by lots of people, lots of beings. He's just saying, here, here's the way. Remember the way. We get to go live in this beautiful city together. So this path, this path that he shows us, the Eightfold Path, often we hear it, as wise view or right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right right samadhi. But that's just one translation of this word sama, samaditi, samasankapo. Right in Pali, we're still figuring out how these words are translated. Another translation of sama is complete. Complete view, complete intention, complete speech, complete action, complete livelihood, complete effort, complete mindfulness, and complete samadhi. Does that change it a little bit? How is that if we're just working on completion, returning to wholeness, and in a lot of the texts, when we hear this Eightfold Noble Path, it's not necessarily really what we're doing explicitly. It's more the result of practice. So you don't have to memorize it. You don't have to know what it means. You don't have to even study it. It comes naturally, just like Jarrah was saying yesterday, that we just keep going, putting one step, one foot in front of the other, and we become this path. It's completion. We become it. This is what the Buddha says in the suttas. It's the fruition 
of all of our energy, our trust, our diligence. So that's for your contemplation to think about what does it feel like to do complete effort, complete mindfulness here, complete action. How does it feel like a fullness, a wholeness? How can I tell? And the Buddha taught a lot about complete effort. And we've been saying a lot about this too, like relax. You know, effort on the path, we always try too hard. So much of our conditioning is pushing, 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 pushing. And this beautiful image, the Buddha's crossing the floods. And somebody comes and asks, Buddha, Buddha, how did you cross the floods? How did you do it? You're asking us all these questions. How? How do I do it? How do I practice Vedana? How do I live in this really messed up world? How do I, how? How do I practice Metta? And the Buddha said, it's by halt. Okay, so crossing the flood. You know, imagine he's like rowing his raft or swimming. He said, it's by not halting and by not straining, I cross the flood. Oh, how do we not stop but also not strain? That's what we're doing with complete effort. And again, I would posit that we already know this. So you might look at something you love, like if you love exercise or if you love cooking or gardening. I know we have some good cooks here. When we stir the oats, we whip whip cream, right? or we chop the vegetables, some of you might have been veggie chopping, or washing dishes, there's an intelligence in the body that knows the pressure, right? It knows just how to stir the oats. It knows just how, like, how much pressure to put on the knife, carrots, right? We learn, we learn over repetition how to do this. So the body itself knows this kind of effortless effort when we're in the flow. We're not halting, we're not straining. I saw this. I tend to, I, I'm a kind of an aggressive typer. And I saw this when I shared an office with someone. I was like, tapping away. You know, they're like, you're intense there with your typing. And it was this whole learning of like, oh, wait, I actually don't have to, you know, it's like the energy of email. Like, what if it was a little more gentle? Not halting, not straining. We don't have to exert all that effort. And we do, we do on this path. We bring all that conditioning here. But again and again, what if it's a releasing into this effortless effort? And trusting the intelligence in your body. They already know how to walk. This body already knows how to walk. It already knows how to breathe. You don't have to fix it. Not broken. So again and again, and we have to, I mean, we, we sway, you know, we go too hard, too little, we have to kind of find our way. It's like a weaving on the path, not necessarily a straight line, like Nakaway's poem, right? The way is not necessarily a straight line. So the Dhamma wheel is turning. The Dhamma wheel is already turning. You're here, you're doing it. This is us. We are the Dharma wheel. And in the sutta, in the Dhammachaka Sutta, all the gods and the goddesses, the celestial beings, they say, the wheel of the Dharma is turning and nothing can stop it. No god or human, recluse or Brahmin can stop this wheel from turning. It's inevitable. 
It's inevitable. So if we keep practicing moment by moment, lawfully, our heart will get free. It's lawful. The Buddha gave this image of, I I shared this with one group, we're like hens sitting on our eggs. And we like this, like all these hundred hens all here, and we got our little nests and our eggs. And the Buddha said, it's like nature. Inevitably, even if she doesn't want her eggs to hatch, if she keeps sitting on the eggs, they're going to hatch. It's going to happen. You can't help it. Natural. One by one, moment by moment, breath by breath. Inevitable. It's certain. Our freedom is certain. We just have to keep going. Just sit on your nest. So by way of concluding, I thought I would uh, offer this. This is probably my favorite quote of all time. I share it a lot. It's my favorite. Uh, this is by the, the French monk, Mathieu Ricard. Uh, he's a monk in the Tibetan tradition. He says, this is the way enlightened beings relate to everything. Their world is made of rainbows. Everything briefly appears, then gradually or suddenly disappears. Imagine how your relationship to the world would change if you realized it's all made of rainbows. You're sitting on a rainbow. You're holding a rainbow in your hands. You go to sleep on a rainbow bed and cover yourself with a rainbow blanket. You eat and drink rainbows. You put rainbow clothes on a rainbow body and you make love to a rainbow mate. When your rainbow house disappears, it's no big deal. That's just what rainbows do. So a rainbow is made of light and water and space, clouds. It's integrated. There's a wholeness, a coming together of parts. And ta-da, it's a rainbow. And that's just exactly what we are. We're coming together of parts. And so as we integrate, as we love all of these different parts, we're waking up to this wholeness, this truth. Knowing things as they've come to be and also a deep reconciling the falling apart of things. It's all coming together and falling apart and coming together and falling apart. So we're learning how to be at peace with this. And there's such a deep liberation that's available when we can be at peace with this. And perhaps the Four Noble Truths is just all about loving ourselves into that deepest kind of freedom. So maybe we can just sit quietly together and let the words settle in the room.
Thank you for your kind attention. And we have time for sunset now. Should be on the schedule. Sunset Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.